Monkey to like a the podcast project of the Fenebulist by Leopold Lambert. Today, the body and its rites of passage, Sikhism and masculinity in Indian Punjab with Arjun Gill. Today my guest is uh, Arjun Gill, uh, who's a, a filmmaker and an anthropologist uh, teaching at uh, Tosong University in Washington DC. Um, Arjun uh, grew up in, uh, in Chandigarh in India, in Punjab, and, uh, and then moved to the, moved to the US and he, he went back to, to Chandigarh a few years ago to, uh, to do an anthropology an anthropological studies that we're gonna we talk we're gonna talk about today. Uh, hello, Arjun. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Oh here. no, thank you. Please. <laughs> uh, and um, as uh, as I usually ask my guest, uh, just to to warm up the voices, uh, can you can you maybe tell us in a few words what uh, what you're what you're doing those days? I think to tomorrow you're part of a symposium that I'm actually very looking forward to. Yeah, so today I'm actually here in uh, New York for a conference. It's called Locations of Learning, Transnational Feminist Practices. Uh, and it's a workshop and conference. And today we just had a chance to work within our um, this community of scholars who are feminist and transnational studies scholars and talk about uh, some of the different ways in which we um, engage in these topics both on academic level in terms of academia and working in academia and as well as in, within our own research and tomorrow we'll be doing a more formal conference where, where we will be delivering presentations and doing round, round tables on our respective topics so I was actually talking about I'm in I'm actually the um I'm on the board for Society for Visual Anthropology, and I'm also this year directing the Society for Visual Anthropology Film Festival. So I was talking about uh, my topic tomorrow and today was uh, talking about how certain forms of representations, especially of um, queer bodies and perspectives and subjectivities, as well as feminist bodies and subjectivities, are often sidelined or erased or excluded from what we consider the canon of ethnographic film or what we consider the the you know, the exemplar of what is ethnographic film and and how it's that's very problematic and and as someone who is now in a position to make some kind of change I'm trying to rethink and and redefine anthropology and visual anthropology within this subdiscipline to include those voices and to pay attention to those marginalized voices. Um, well, and uh, and uh, the, it's it's interesting because it, it's making the bridge to how I was going to start this conversation, which was uh, uh, my my surprise when I when I started reading your your thesis that you finished two years ago. Uh, I, I, you, you've wrote somewhere in it that you started it as a study of uh, Punjabi cinema uh, and uh, shifted, uh, pr uh, shifted uh, uh, at some point toward more uh, study of masculinity in, uh, uh, through the examples of uh, various uh, uh, Sikh migrants in, uh, in Chandigarh, who, so, uh, young, young Sikh men who were coming from uh, rural areas, uh, areas sorry. And uh, moved to Chandigarh, and so you've been uh, you've been stu you've been studying um, uh, uh, the ways the ways they interact with their new environment, and uh, also made a film uh, made a film the, based on that uh, called Roots of Love, um, and uh, so I think we're gonna we're gonna try to unfold little by little how. Um, uh, how this uh, notion of masculinity uh, um, and in relation to uh, uh, let's say semiotic of, of, of how those bodies appear in uh, in public uh, have something to tell us about about bodies in general bodies in society um, 
So, so Chandigarh is a capital city of the Indian part of Punjab, uh, Lahore being the, the one of the Pakistani uh, part. Uh, we will talk about Chandigarh later, and I'm sure the uh, architect, architect listeners of this podcast are, are interested at this point by the, the city itself, uh, designed by Le Corbusier. But, uh, but first, uh, let's talk about uh, the Sikh population of Punjab. So 60% or 65%, you're saying, maybe, uh, of the population uh, is, is Sikh in, uh, in, um, in uh, Punjab. And maybe can you tell us something? Uh, can you explain to us maybe what are the, the uh, how to say, the, the signs that uh, any uh, Sikh body is uh, supposed to be uh, carrying with him or her uh, uh, what we call the five Ks, so that because I, I don't I don't think many people actually knows about that. Yeah, yeah. certainly uh, Sikhs are the majority in Punjab and vis-a-vis in Chandigarh because it's the capital city. And for most Sikhs, at least Sikh men, um, you know, their turban is obviously one of the most visible signs, but the turban actually is not part of the religious signs. The, the, the religious importance the religious significance is to the unshorn or the uncut hair that the tur- turban is covering. So uh, even though the uncut hair is the most important uh, symbol in Sikh religion, Sikhs don't cut their hair, turban, by the virtue of being sort of the outside um, object that wraps the unshorn hair, becomes significant in Sikh history and Sikh iconography. iconography and Sikh culture. Of course, uh, you know, women are also expected to grow their hair long. So for Sikhs, for there are sort of three different levels of being Sikh, so to speak, or three different, bod- what I say, call bodily configurations of, of being Sikh. There is the, what is referred to as the Amritthari Sikh. Uh, in other words, that's the Orthodox Sikh. Uh, which are Sikh men who and women as well, um, but for men they uh, you have to have your long hair. They have to observe all five Ks of Sikhism. Mm-hmm. You have the long hair. Um, you wear the um, the dagger, the kirpan. You wear uh, a comb in your hair. You wear the breeches, and then you wear the kara, which is the bracelet. The, the five Ks being the five letters that starts uh, each of those uh, objects. So the, the Kesh, the Kenga, the Kara, the Kirpan, and the Kashera. Kashera. Kashera, yes. Kesh, Kanga, uh, Kirpan, Kashera, and the Kara. Yeah, thank you. So uh, the five Ks from the letters um, starting with that. And then there is... So that's that's the, the Orthodox Sikhism, which most Sikhs in Punjab don't practice um, because with that there are a lot of other responsibilities and expectations you know you have to be vegetarian you certainly have to give up alcohol which you know a lot of Punjabi men there are big drinkers <laughs> um, so uh, can you can you wear a dagger in the city just yeah you can wear it okay. you can wear it there's no um, it's not like here where it would be considered um, something that is threatening um, and then the second sort of bodily configuration is what we refer to as the Keshdhari Sikh, uh, the Sikh that grows their hair long and wears the turban, and they generally wear the kara, but they don't observe all the other um, sort of other uh, parts of being an Orthodox Sikh. And most Sikhs fall into this configuration of the Keshdhari Sikhs in, in Punjab or in India. And then the third uh, formation um, is what is referred to as the Mona Sikh or the Katsurd, which is a sort of a colloquial term for it, which is a Sikh who has cut his hair. And depending on where he is, he might or may not wear the turban. Usually he is not supposed to wear the turban. Um, and who, who still identifies as a Sikh. And for most upper caste or upper class Sikhs after cutting their hair their their claim to Sikh identity is off, not challenged you know it's perfectly okay 
Whereas for a lot of um, working class or low caste Sikhs, uh, their claims to Sikh identity is more likely to be challenged if they do cut their hair. So there's a little bit of a class um, sort of difference that's going on there. Um, and I, of course, look at the experiences of young men who do cut their hair. Mm. And, and, and what's important to just specify here that even though the rhetoric, the religious rhetoric, it will say that, you know, if you've cut your hair, you've become an apostate and you are not part of the religion anymore. You're no longer a Sikh. And that's the official word by, you know, the Sikh religious organizations in India. It actually, in reality, it's very rare that somebody's disowned or not considered Sikh even after cutting their hair. So cutting their hair becomes a, a sort of form of acceptance you know, as long as they're still identifying as Sikh, it's perfectly fine. So it doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily mean that you're kicked out of the religion mm-hmm. religious group. And uh, yeah, and I think your your film Roots of Love uh, illustrates that uh, quite uh, thoroughly. Uh, and and there's some things that I wanted to talk about about it, which um, um, uh, you very deliberately, I can only assume. Uh, uh, superimpose two uh, let's say right right of passage of passage uh, in in the film uh, with, a, with a, an editing that goes from one to another all the time uh, that is on the one hand the Dastar Bandi ceremony which is uh, maybe a 12, 12 years old uh, 12 to 14 yeah 12 to 14 years old uh, uh, boy that um, uh, has this passage into uh, into into Sikhism in in uh, where having the ceremony of the the turban, but on the other hand, you have uh, those other images of a young a young Sikh man who's who's getting his hair cut, and obviously on on the on the first case uh, there is uh, an obvious uh, sense of ceremony because it is a religious ceremony, so there is a kind of performativity of it that that's very apparent. But in the second one, there's just as much of it, just as much of a ceremony, just as much of a performativity uh, uh, of cutting your hair, even though it's, they might not be, it might not feel like it because uh, it's it's a barber basically doing it, and uh, and many of us have the 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 experience of going to the barber, not really overthinking about it. But in in this specific case, it has such a, such a, a heavy meaning in it, and and and. Uh, I find I find that fascinating how you superimpose those two those yeah. two things. Well, it's these 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 forms of bodily transformations always take takes place in the presence of others, right? So um, you're absolutely right. So what my research looks at is how um, young Sikh men who mostly grow up in rural um, uh, villages and how they develop their sense of Sikh masculinity or Punjabi masculinity and notions of manhood and for many of them it's developed through these dual processes one is this patriarchal passage from father to son this you know ideas around um, towing the land working the land um, and uh, you know sort of passage of work becomes a way of passing masculinity and ideas about patriarchal uh, privilege and, and and family styles, and then there is this other uh, uh, domain, public domain, in which masculinity is produced, which is uh, the the peer group, right? The 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 friends and the uh, um, the groups, the other sort of cohort of of young men. So I look at how um, the the sort of official rite of passage for most Sikh men into manhood, and again, this is not true for women, this is only true for men, is precisely this turban-tying ceremony. It's the turban-tying... When you undergo that turban-tying ceremony, you become go from being a, a young boy to becoming a man. Before the turban-tying ceremony, it's your mother who takes care of your hair. She cares for it. She ties it into a, a little top knot. And then after that, it's the expectation is the father would teach you how to tie a turban. So the father is teaching you how to take care of your hair. So the 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 hair as sort of a symbol as attached to the body shifts as as what it, what domain it the the symbol itself 
acquires different gendered meaning, mm-hmm. right? And then the, 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 the next level that I look at and the juxtapose against is experiences of young men who come, who are in these rural areas, but um, they don't have a lot of uh, uh, employment opportunities. So many of them feel the pressure to migrate abroad or move abroad or move to the city. So for them, it's moving to Chandigarh and cutting their hair is then this embodiment or undergoing another rite of passage into this transnational masculinity, the transnational migrant masculinity even though some of them might not move abroad or might not end up getting the visa, they undergo it. That's often the first step they take is they go to Chandigarh and they cut their hair and often in the presence of their friends. And it is a symbolic step in the overall process of migration abroad. And so so what I try to do in the film is I try to juxtapose these, these dual rites of passages, one and two, one into Sikh Punjabi ma- manhood and one into this transnational, mm-hmm. uh, you know, migrant masculinity, mm-hmm. right? Which are sort of two different forms of, that require two different forms of bodily configurations. Now, I'm, I want to go back to the point that you just um, asked earlier, uh, or you made earlier about my shift from looking at Punjabi cinema to looking at migrant men. And that was actually... What was interesting watching these Punjabi films when I first started looking at Punjabi films was how the hero of the Punjabi cinema was constructed, how his body and his masculinity was constructed. And uh, he was always depicted as this transnational migrant who was easily able to move across national boundaries, who would go to Canada and make a lot of money, but come home and be connected to home and when he was in Canada, he would have short hair. When he comes home, he puts on the turban back on. So he's very aware of his uh, sort of rights and responsibilities to the family. So he's this this transnational migrant who, who continuously moves back and forth between diaspora and mm-hmm. home. And in many ways, that image of the, the, the Punjabi hero, this transnational Punjabi hero, is the template, is the exemplar mm-hmm. successful masculinity that a lot of these young men are trying to embody yeah. which is extremely interesting because uh, uh, as much as uh, no nobody can really uh, incarnate the, the norm, normative uh, figure of, of, of the male for example the, the, mas- mas- the, the absolute uh, paradigm of masculinity but in cinema, you you can have a character embody, embodying embodying it, and as in your in your thesis, you you're quoting, uh, you quote there's a quote that I that I um, that I picked up, um, that I yeah, you're quoting uh, C J Pasco saying uh, very few men, if any, are actually hegemonically masculine, but all men do benefit to different extent from this sort of definition of masculinity. And I, I think we have a pretty, uh, we have a, a, here a universal uh, explanation of what the norm does, which is that no, no one really incarnates it, but basically somebody's, uh, because of their relatively close their degree of proximity to what the norm really is mm-hmm. do benefits from those privileges uh, as we said in pre- when we prepared this conversation as much in, in terms of genders than in terms of race and other, mm-hmm. other uh, characteristics of the norm. Well, certainly, I mean, I, I wouldn't say nobody, but there are some people who very directly benefit from the kind of rights and privileges that accompany being a man. Mm-hmm. For instance, being a man in India Right, which are these patriarchal rights and privileges, as well as being uh, from a landed caste, from uh, upper caste. But at the same, so there are some people who are directly benefiting from it, who are taking advantage of that, and people in positions of power. But for most men, they are complicit uh, because they don't. They might not directly benefit, but being men or being men from a specific um, social status allows them to be able to do things that are not allowed for, let's say, women, mm-hmm. right? Punjabi women 
oftentimes who migrate abroad have a very different uh, sort of way of migrating than a Punjabi man. A Punjabi man can undertake a kind of risky migration that is required often uh, in order for you to migrate as a student migrant or a labor migrant. It is a very risky form of migration. You move to Chandigarh, you live there for three, four years by yourself with other men, and then you move to another country not knowing the language. Many of them don't know the language. Many of them don't know the culture, and they're coming, ending up in completely new environments where they're very vulnerable, and they're at the mercy of often other diasporic members, yet they can do it, even illegal migrants as well. Whereas women don't have that opportunity because there are all these notions around shame and there are notions around family honor that must be maintained and protected. So for a lot of women, it's not that they don't migrate abroad. They often migrate as wives of husbands who are living abroad. Mm -hmm. So men who come back to get married and in that process, they're entirely dependent on their husbands, their transnational migrant husbands, who can take advantage of, the, you know, they can, if they wanted, they could just abandon them after getting married and getting dowry, you know, and then just abandon them and take off and never, in, you know, apply for their visas or something, which are cases that happen in Punjab. So in that sense, by the virtue of being a man and by the virtue of being from a certain caste and class status, you have a certain amount of mobility that is available to you. You have a certain amount of um, ability to move around, which um, which is a privilege, which is a very patriarchal privilege. Mm -hmm. uh, they might not uh, sort of engage with it directly, but they are certainly complicit in taking part in it. Yeah. I, mean, I think we can find this this notion of privilege in uh, in all society and oh, yeah. to a, a various uh, you know various embodiments of the of the norm. Uh, uh, but uh, still talking about their their uh, masculinity and uh, and, and uh, Sikhism, uh, I read something that I in your thesis that I didn't know, which is that I I didn't know that part of their part of their British Empire uh, military corps were made. Uh, uh, Exclusively, some of them were made uh, exclusively by uh, sick sick men, but what I didn't know is that uh, um, uh, the the British um, uh, entertained the idea that uh, um, that this uh, from, from within within Indian population, uh, sick men might be more masculine than other other men, which which is an interesting uh, uh, way of. Uh, uh, another colonially driven uh, um, uh, intervention within within the Indian population. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I mean that's the the kind of valorizing of Sikh masculinity, right? And and if you look at if you go back and and look at uh, some of the colonial discourses, that's how Sikhs were produced as these um, these colonial subjects in some ways, because after after the British annexed uh, Punjab, um, it instead of sort of, you know, getting rid of the, the Sikh army, they co-opted them into their, um, their, their forces, their army, the British army. And the way in which they did that was precisely through, by allowing Sikhs to keep their turbans and growing, keep their hair long. So you, you sort of privilege them based on their bodily appearances and often Sikh masculinity, which was thought of as this rugged, rural, you know, dogged masculinity. You know, Sikh men were thought of as very brave and macho and hyper-masculine. That was constructed very deliberately against... Um, Bengali masculinity, because Bengali men who were the intellectuals of India were considered very sort of, you know, feminine and lethargic and and very um, not masculine, mm -hmm. right? And um, and it's and, a northwest versus a northeast. Certainly, yeah. and 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 it was it was it, it was beneficial for British to do that because, you know, I think in many ways the the anti-colonial 
movement, the independence movement, started with Bengali intellectuals. So they wanted to marginalize them in many ways as possible, whereas Sikhs always ended up... Sikhs became the kind of ideal colonial subjects who became part of the the British military and, and the military the British military very very specifically through its uh, policies privileged and privileged them and also gave them special treatment mm-hmm. to make them feel superior and that sense of superiority you know gendered superiority is still there you know even now you think of who defines the epitome of masculinity in India? You immediately think of Punjabi masculinity mm. being the, the the epitome of what is sort of hyper masculinity, right? Mm. I mean, just in this kind of a brawn, you know, not brain way, you know, mm-hmm. this kind of purely physical, powerful way. Mm-hmm. It's true that when I think about it, uh, Subhash Chandra Bose was uh, Bengali, so that's. <laughs> There's certainly uh, uh, part of the beginning of the uh, independent independent uh, movement starting from there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, certainly. Um, there, there is a just to go back to the to to this object because that that's something I'm very interested in. It's a it's an object, the turban. It's a it's a designed object. It's a it's a piece of fabric, but in uh, it's uh, I'm I'm very attached to this idea that it, it is it is a. A design object, and uh, w- within this piece of fabric, there's a l- lot of uh, kind of cultural complexity going on. But uh, in the film, uh, in your film, Roots of Love, um, there is one of the one of the uh, person you're interviewing who's explaining that the turban is made for uh, sick to be counted. I think that's that's the word he used to 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 be able to count ourselves or something like mm-hmm. that. And um, and. Uh, so there, there's a kind of uh, regime of, of recognizability uh, 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 within within themselves, but within uh, society in general, and that's something that I'm interested in because uh, that works in uh, current uh, in contemporary Punjab, for example. Mm-hmm. But also that also stigmatize uh, a population when when there is this uh, degree of recognizability. So. I'm thinking of two examples. Uh, one of them, you, you, you talked about it in your thesis, which is uh, uh, in 1984, they're, they're, um, uh, they're, the attack uh, in Amritsa uh, of, of uh, the leader of the, of, of, of the Sikh mo- uh, of, um, po- the political movement associated mm-hmm. to Sikhism by uh, the, the administration of Indira Gandhi. Mm-hmm. And the retaliation of that, which uh, consists in uh, uh, Indira Gandhi's uh, uh, bodyguards uh, assassinating her because they, they were they were sick, and following that, uh, uh, it's there the repercussions always, but uh, retaliation always. But uh, there there is um, uh, uh, an important amount of their of their sick population that that got stigmatized and and and, and attacked. Because, precisely because they were able to be recognized uh, for those for this reason, and that's something we can see also uh, in the contemporary uh, uh, America, for example, where and in following following um, uh, uh, the attacks from the, uh, the September 11th, 2001, where uh, in a in a what I would call the collective misunderstanding, because there's a collective understanding of what of of, of of those objects, uh, what those object means, but there's also a collective misunderstanding in how, uh, based on uh, ignorance, those uh, this culture can be associated to uh, something it has nothing to do with, uh, and uh, and so there is a stigmatization uh, uh, still going on with uh, sick men in America uh, that are perceived as a, as a, as terrorists or as uh, antagon- antagonists to the U.S. or uh, Whatever it is that they're claiming, uh, so can you can you maybe talk a little bit about this uh, kind of recognizability, 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 and uh, the fact of being able to to count uh, this population? Yeah, certainly. I mean, in some ways, again, I think we have to keep in mind. I should start this conversation by saying that the turban gains its significance from the unshorn hair that mm-hmm. it is covering. With that said, in the religious context, in the religious Sikh context, with that said, the turban has acquired cultural and historical meanings. It's become an important part of 
Sikh identity, and some would Sikh scholars today would argue Turban is the, perhaps the most important part of Sikh identity, even though it's not one of the four or five Ks, it's still the most important part of Sikh identity because of its visible, because it operates as a visible symbol, right? Now, why is it that Sikh turban is different from, you know, other forms of headgear that a lot of other men wore, um, you know, all across from India, Asia to the to Turkey, you know, or the um, or parts of uh, Middle East throughout up until uh, late nineteenth century? Um, so the one way which it has it has. First of all, Sikhs as a minority um, have used turban as a, as marking their identity, hmm. right? That's it's a very two percent of the Indian population. It's a two percent of the Indian uh, population, so marking of that identity and being able to signal it very clearly uh, was important. It's important. It's important in the colonial uh, uh, discourses we've just talked about. But it's also important kind of on a political and cultural, as a political and cultural project. Also, it has kind of other regional meanings. The turban has, um, you know, indicates your caste status, your um, status of how much, if you're a landed, um, you know, landowner, or if you're a laborer, a certain turban indicates um, what where you're from, what region, what uh, your class background is. Um, so in that sense, you have the regional meaning. So turban in some ways does the job of representing, but also it does the job of be- belonging. So there, there, it's, uh, it's kind of, for turban wearing Sikh men, uh, turban is simultaneously um, sort of a duty that they must perform, they must uphold this object that they must always keep wrapped their hair in. Yet at the same time, they recognize that if you're a turbaned man in regional context, in Punjab or in India, you will be given a certain respect, you know, vis-a-vis through all these kind of powers and privileges and ma- and, and very gendered discourses that are um, associated with the turban, right? So um, now when you take that into a transnational context and you think about the way in which turban has been framed, especially in the post 9-11 discourse, um, there is certainly a parallel between that and what happened in 1980s in Punjab and the political unrest that happened in Punjab, where you have um, the turbaned, Sikh man was the threatened uh, Sikh man by the um, the state, mm-hmm. right? The state uh, made him a target. In, made him a target, but state enacted violence very deliberately onto uh, Sikh male bodies, and oftentimes there were these uh, there was an insurgency movement, and often the police would just go out and collect young Sikh men, turban Sikh men, and kill them and say, these are terrorists that have been assassinated in, a, in an encounter with the police. So they were a way to add to the roles, so to speak, you know. Um, and as a consequence of that, a lot of young, a lot of families sent their young men away. They sent them abroad. And in fact, there's a whole uh, literature on this that um, written by Radhika Chopra, who's an anthropologist in Delhi, who talks about this, about the sent away boys who were sent abroad. And certainly, so you have, um, you have even before nine, uh, the 9-11 incidents, you have this, uh, the militant body, the tortured Sikh body, uh, tortured by the state, and images of that being circulated around the, the world as a way of raising awareness to the, the Sikh plight and the notion of Sikh nationhood around which the idea of Sikh nationhood was was uh, consolidated. Of course, it did, never became a project. It never actually, Sikhs never got their own independent nationhood, but that was a period where that was a possibility. Mm-hmm. And of course, the body of uh, Bhindrawale, the, the, the 
leader who was assassinated in 1984, the martyr turban body, that's the sacrificed body, right? That mm-hmm. martyr, that's the martyr. That's one form of masculinity. When he, he was assassinated in the, in, the, in the temple, in the golden temple. In the golden in, temple. Uh, Amritsar, which is like the, the ultimate, the absolute uh, holy place of Sikhism. Right? Yeah, it is the... So the symbol the, was even stronger. The, yeah, it's mm-hmm. absolutely the, the, the center of the, uh, uh, the Sikh um, you know, power and culture um, in the golden temple. Uh, you know, the sacred space. Uh, and in the whole sacred space was decimated as well uh, by Indira Gandhi's action. And it was a very, very bad choice. And everyone, most people agreed that, that was a very politically a very bad, bad strategy uh, on the behalf of the Indian army. Of course, we no- now know that British and Margaret Thatcher actually uh, advised yeah. Indira Gandhi at that time period on the 1984 era. Uh, Golden Temple of she did. <laughs> attack. You know, we this this just came out two months ago oh, in, wow. the, in the media. So, so now there's this big push on the behalf of the British to apologize formally for their uh, activities. So they've denied it for a long time, and now it all all comes out in these memos um, of the Thatcher regime. I think mm. it was Thatcher at that time. So it's and, a, the post-colonial colonial intervention. <laughs> yeah. Certainly, and and then you have this uh, that the meaning of the turban in kind of post nine eleven discourse, and of course there are some scholars uh, who just Beer Puar being one of them who talk very brilliantly about this and how the turban body gets marked as the other, the monstrous, the deviant body, right, and um, and also again becomes threatening as well as threatened so in some ways that the turban body is threatened as well as threatening right now if you if you look at the way in which the migrants deal with that with this issue of how um even though turban is supposed to always be there to cover your unshorn hair by cutting their hair and then only putting on the turban in certain occasions they're sort of getting, they're practicing a form of flexible citizenship, of flexible belonging, where they, when they're abroad or where they go abroad, they take off the turban so that they're not read as outsiders or read as, you know, foreigners or aliens, you know, and the, the, imagine, the, the kind of cultural imagination that goes with that mm-hmm. um, in the post-9-11 context. But when they go home, when they fly back to Punjab, they put the turban back on. So in some ways, they've sort of figured out that the turban is this symbol whose meaning, which the subject's meaning changes depending on which location you're in, what country you're in. And, and, and you can sort of put that object back on or take it off depending on which direction you're headed. Mm. You know, and that's what I'm looking at is that how this the symbol becomes a symbol of identity, um, but then now sort of is transformed even more through these transnational migratory processes um, into uh, a, a sort of a symbol of belonging and privilege, right? Um, and certain forms of uh, privilege. And, and, and I think that's, that's, that's a very different experience from, let's say, if you look at the experiences of Sikh men who fled India in 1984 and after that, immediately after that, as political asylees or asylum seekers. Mm. Um, and many of them still have had their turbans and have unshorn hair and they feel this intense sense of uh, betrayal and, and, and are very, um, very insistent upon you know, saying we're going to retain our, sim- our identity symbols as a, as, as lobbying protest against the nation state, you know, which mm-hmm. discriminated against us. That's a very different experience from, let's say, a transnational migrant who goes back to India all the time, who's able to kind of move across these transnational boundaries, who's able to go back and is en- able to engage in this kind of circular movement. Uh, well, 
if if we go back to the maybe regional uh, migration uh, after talking about the international migration uh, um, and uh, maybe address their, their the cities that Chenigar is uh, I think that could be interesting because um, so uh, to put back to put that back in a historical context so it's a it's a city that was built. Uh, right up, uh, that was decided to be built right after the partition of Pakistan and India because uh, the capital city of, of uh, Punjab was Lahore and uh, Lahore was going to be on the Pakistani side. So we, we have this construction of, uh, of a new city uh, from pretty much from scratch, although actually not exactly from scratch, which actually creates some interesting uh, urban uh, uh, phenomena of, of the villages uh, that became a little Kasbah inside there. The grid of uh, of uh, Chandigarh, but so Chandigarh became this uh, this uh, capital city of both uh, both Punjab and uh, Ariana, and um, and the design the, the the urban design was uh, left to to uh, Le Corbusier and and uh, kind of a very uh, I mean Le Corbusier is someone who said like architecture uh, a house is a is a is a machine to inhabit in it so it's. Uh, clearly, Chanigar is a machine to to live to live in it, and uh, you you can see how this says uh, uh, seven very clear uh, axes of uh, typologies of uh, axes of uh, of uh, transportation, for example, and how everything is built on a on a grid. It's it's pretty rigid. Uh, since it's in India, it's interesting to see how how uh, kind of. Uh, uh, this this uh, this scheme coming from the outside of India got got kind of reappropriated by the the Indian locality, which is which yeah. is a very interesting contrast to to to, to observe. Uh, but um, uh, what you're saying in your thesis is that is that it's a city that's been very deliberately uh, built in opposition to. Uh, the values the rural rural world might might have like it's it's a, it's a, it's clearly a city that uh, is perceived for rightful reasons or not but as as a kind of production of knowledge city and 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 that where but also it's it's interesting how it seems from from what i when i read you i i, I see an opposition of uh, on the one hand this this kind of uh, uh this kind of idea of like the kind of sophisticated city or something like that, and on the other hand, a, a dangerous city where where uh, uh, young young sick men will will lose their will lose their uh, authenticity maybe, and and uh, and um, we're talking about men, but women are even worse. Like as you said, they they might not even be authorized to migrate there. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about about how this city is uh, is lived uh, within Punjab and by those kind of two populations, uh, the one that is born in Chandigarh, the one that migrated there? Yeah, certainly. I mean, Chandigarh is such an interesting uh, just place in so many different ways. Um, and, and, and you kind of have to put that in the context of the project of nation building in in. Uh, in India that started after the partition and in some ways um, Chandigarh was deliberately this supposed to be this example of secular modernity right and in 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 doing that in making this as a city that was literally a transport for most people it felt like a transported from west the city that had been airlifted and dropped onto in the middle of India, uh, it never, it was never a city for Punjabis or Sikhs, for that matter. It, even though it was, they were told that Chandigarh is your new capital. It was the 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 political project behind building the Chandigarh was that it was never it was never one that they could claim as their own, and and our architecture certainly reflected that right at that time because most of Punjab is very rural and Chandigarh is a very modern city and um, so what from the very early on the Punjabi farmer going to the going to Chandigarh was this kind of almost a migratory experience uh, which was sort of parallel to going abroad. So people would say that Chandigarh is like abroad. Mm -hmm. It is the city that looks like 
you know, a European city. So people talk about their journey to Chandigarh, even though, you know, you can get from a major part of Punjab, you can get to Chandigarh in two, three hours driving. And Chandigarh is on the border of Punjab, interestingly enough, not in the middle of Punjab as the capital. In the so east of there. It's a, it's a very east. It borders with Punjab. Um, so going to Chandigarh was like going abroad. So from very early on, Chandigarh is a city that's been imbued with these ideas about modernity, about, um, about cosmopolitanism, and now increasingly around transnationalism because there is... Um, this perception of Chandigarh as knowledge society, as a place where you go to learn English, because that's one of the skills that you need to emigrate, is to be able to speak the language, right? And that's where all the counselors are. That's where you go and learn English. That's where you get the, the um, access other forms of um, migration-related services, right? So if you want to migrate as a, as a, a skilled worker, that's where you go get, to get the training in computers. So it becomes... That's also where the high court is. That's where the high court is as well. That's where the administration is. But at the same time, it's not necessarily considered part of Punjab, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the place that young men move to as the kind of first step to transnational migration or migrating abroad. So in my dissertation, I look at how, and that's the title of the, uh, the dissertation is Becoming Men in a Modern City, is precisely that, that how they go from being rural um, Punjabi men moving to the city. And in that time, in this period that they spend in Chandigarh, the two, three years they spend, they, they sort of undergo another form of um, kind of rite of passage into this transnational masculinity, right? And they learn what it means to be a cosmopolitan. They learn what it means to be, you know, global. So it's it's a city where a lot of people's aspirations and their their ideas around modernity are projected onto it. And of course, Kerbusi's architecture and its legacy as this modern city play into it, mm. right? It plays very nicely into that idea about uh, 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 modernity and transnationalism. Um, now, what's interesting now in the past five years, what has started happening is to look at how the city itself is reshaped by the migrants, right? So a lot of young men who move abroad, they send money home back to Chandigarh or to uh, Punjab, their mm -hmm. families. And many of them do come back and they buy houses in Chandigarh. So Chandigarh, which previously was a, as a city visually looks very bland and it's very concrete. It's very, um, it, it doesn't have the kind of ornament or ornamentation that you generally associated with Indian culture. Yeah. Certainly it's very gray. It's very, uh, plain. It's very simple, uh, and 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 that that sort of that's you get the sense of of uh, um, of clean architecture there. Now and, it's and by the way, just to jump in, that's uh, from what I know. There there is a very still still uh, uh, forty years later. There's still a very very strict uh, architectural councils that authorize or do not authorize for any form of uh, addition to their to the architecture paradigm of Chandigarh. So yeah. the ornamentation is definitely, even like the, the, the commercial signs are, mm -hmm. are, are, are very, very thoroughly uh, 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 reg, um, uh, regulated, regulated and regimented. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. 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 Certainly. So, so what's interesting is that, uh, so you have these public spaces which are very, they look exactly the same as they did 50 years ago when Corbusier first built them, or at least... They embody the same kind of um, aesthetics. And then you have all these um, private houses where you have uh, clearly transnational money that's coming back, migrant money that's coming back and is being put into redo redoing the houses. And these houses are, I mean, the most sort of 
garish use of every material construction material you, you can think of it's just you know th let's throw every piece of marble that we can find they're very you know ostentatious and very kind of you know they 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 take on you know some of them actually look like mini white houses or something that the, uh, uh, they have that sort of greek pillars mm -hmm. and 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 so so there's this interesting there's also the city itself is being reconstructed by by Punjabis slowly as well, you know, and, and by migrants as well through this transnational circulation of money. So the city is being uh, uh, sort of reshaped. And the other ways in which the city is being reshaped is what's happening on the peripheries. If you look at what's happening on the peripheries and the peripheries of Chandigarh, you have these massive, um, you know, urban growth. You know, Chandigarh was a city where that was the only city and there was nothing around it for a while. There were like, there were jungles around it. And now there are all these high rises and colonies that are popping up, you know, and these are gated communities where you can, and it is comp this entire neoliberal sort of uh, economy, you know, sort of speak, an economy that is, again, based around migration as well as uh, the the tech sector, you know, that's growing around Chandigarh, and and that's where a lot of the the, the young men and the young, um, the and the families and the the upwardly mobile or the middle classly mobile families are moving into. That's the spaces that they're beginning to embody. So, you know, where it, sector seventeen used to be this, you know, the place where you'd go to go shopping mm -hmm. in Chandigarh. Today, there's a mega mall that has opened right on the periphery of Chandigarh called Alante Mall. And it's this giant mall. And nobody goes to Sector 17 anymore, so everyone wants to go to Alante. That's the mall that people go to. And now there's stories about, oh, I, I drove two hours yeah. just to go to Alante Mall. And it used to be that, you know, 10 years ago, you'd hear uh, somebody saying, oh, I went, drove, I took the bus two hours or I took the bus six hours just to go shopping in Sector 17. Yeah. Because Sector 17 was the center of all the... The theater just closed, I think, right? In Sector 17. Oh, did it? No, yeah. it's still open. It's, oh, it's still, open. Okay, it's still open, but it's just hanging, it's, barely hanging yeah, on. Okay. <laughs> I actually, I think the last time I was there, I actually saw a Punjabi film yeah. in Neelam Theater for old time's sake, and it's in a pretty poor condition. Uh, but it's, it's, I can't imagine it running like that for very long, mm. but it's barely hanging on. So everyone's now going to these mega malls to go, watching to watch films in megaplexes you know where you have reclining seats and you have a waiter who comes and takes your popcorn order and whatever so so that's that's in some ways the migrants are reshaping the city as well it's not just the city that's shaping their lives well how i think it uh it uh, concludes our conversation <laughs> thank you so much for talking to me thank uh, you no, especially thank you uh, in the middle of a of a workshop <laughs> and a conference that you must be exhausted <laughs> thank you so much well this was a delightful conversation i'm really glad that we were able to do this thank you thank you